Well, hi, this is Hal Tauschik speaking uh, to you um, as a part of our Lenten Bible study series here at St. Martin's Episcopal Church. It's great to be with you, uh, although only on podcast. It's really uh, great to have our third session today. Uh, this will be a, an hour long uh, podcast and we'll be pursuing this. We'll, this will be our, our third part of four studies. Next week, we'll have our fourth. This Lenten study has been real Bible study. This has been very different Bible study. We've used really, really biblical text and very different methods and principles. It has been intensely participatory, fairly emotional, and with a decent share of humor, delight, and puzzlement. Some more of our first two weeks of this different kind of Bible study in a few minutes um, we'll, we'll talk about. First, something else new and different. We are no longer studying Bible together at church in any conventional setting. Because our, of our national health emergency, we are all hunkering down at home. And this is a podcast for the last two weeks of our 2020 Lenten Bible study. No more high wire conversation, surprising conversations in rooms of 40 people, just me talking to you in your and my separate homes. Our plan is pretty clear to give you an hour of presentation for our third week of Lenten Bible study. And then next week, another hour long presentation for our fourth Lenten study. Thanks so much for being with me. Even with this range of losses in our vibrant Bible study and much of the rest of our last two weeks, we hope we can continue some good Bible study. Overall, my deepest wishes for each of us in these moments. I do think I need to do some real review of our first two weeks of this Lenten Bible study. But first, let's just pause for a moment of prayer. God, we thank you for your presence. We give to you our worry, our power, our insight, and our losses. Stay with us, please. Amen. So let me do a little bit of review of what we've done in our first two weeks of Bible study. There are really three reasons that I'm, I feel like we have to start with review rather than just jump in to Bible study. What we've been learning has been challenging, and there has been a big crowd both times, and what has happened has been moving. That's the first reason we just need to remember that. The second reason for review is we are right in the middle of some very new material. It's funny, isn't it, to think that Bible study can have new material, but we've really experienced that. And I know that some of you have had to miss the first two sessions and have told me that you are eager to be with us for our third session. Because of the national health crisis for us to review, the, la the last uh, more than two weeks have been troubling just because of all of the crises we're in the middle of. So probably we have forgotten a good deal of what we were learning. So here is about 10 minutes of review. So the first thing to say is that our Bible study has been based on the work of an African-American biblical scholar, very well known, <clears throat> probably the most famous uh, biblical scholar of our day, uh, uh, African-American biblical scholar. And his name is Vincent Wimbush. Professor Wimbush is currently 
the director of the Institute for the Signify, for, for Signifying Scriptures, Excavating Discourse and Power. He has also served as full professor of New Testament for over 10 years at both Union Theological Seminary in New York and Claremont Graduate University in California. He has served as the international and national president of the Society of Biblical Literature. He has published 12 books, including African-Americans and the Bible, Sacred Textures. He has been awarded numerous major prizes, including from the Ford Foundation, the Lilly Foundation, and the Henry W. Luce Foundation. So um, this is who is really leading our study in this Latin study. He is a, a, a good colleague of mine, and we have worked together uh, more. I'll tell you a little bit about that uh, later on. We focus in our Lenten study on President Wimbush's groundbreaking African Americans and the Bible. This one, this 800-page book proposes the following new program for Bible study. It is a study not just for African Americans. Indeed, Professor Wimbush suggests strongly that this program offers crucial and thorough new ways to think about the Bible for all Americans across racial barriers, both inside and outside church, and as a way to integrate Bible study into developments of our of new kinds of social identities for a broad swath of Americans. The proposal is this. Hundreds of millions of African Americans have intensely for over 300 years studied the Bible. This broad and deep culture-wide study of the Bible by all these people has produced much new understanding of who humans are and what the Bible is about. However, almost all formal and leading American institutions have not acknowledged the wisdom and power of all of this study. Despite the intensity of African-American study of the Bible for over three centuries, the leading scholarly universities, colleges, churches, and seminaries have depended and hailed almost exclusively European and white American biblical scholars and institutions. What Professor Wimbush proposes for us is, for us all, is to, to focus on African-American Bible scholarship and study, and leave aside the European-American scholarship for 20 years or so, just so we can catch up. This will give us a chance to really catch up with some of the many ways that African-Americans have studied the Bible and what that adds to all of our understanding of the Bible. So for our first two sessions, that is what we have been trying out. And it has indeed taught us a great deal. I suspect that some of you find yourself skeptical about Professor Wimbush's proposal. That would not be a surprise, since many of us have not really had a chance to dive into these hundreds of years of what turns out to be a fairly different Bible study. It is also probably helpful for us to restate some additional aspects of Professor Wimbush's proposal that we've heard in our uh, previous two weeks. Here are two sentences of, of, of his that exhibit the surprising character of his proposal. And I'll go through this slowly, although it's only two sentences. Here's what he first says. I suggest foregrounding African-American experience for the study of the Bible, not because the African-American experience is the one experience that finally and alone is somehow the moral right focus and will lead all to the right interpretation of the scripture. Please notice what he said in this first paragraph. He's not Make, asking us to focus on African-American American experience of the Bible because somehow that's the key experience for all humans and it gives us the right answer. He continues, nor do I advance it for the sake of ethnic cheerleading. 
or as privileged insight or wisdom for the privileged few or a certain hue. Notice this. This is so funny and fascinating that President Wimbush, not President, um, uh, Professor Wimbush, um, uh, is not saying that he wants to do what he calls ethnic cheerleading, that African-Americans are the only way to go, or that somehow African-Americans have privileged insight or wisdom for the privileged few or of, of, of a certain hue. Notice his wonderful um, comedy as he says what he's really up to. Here's what he wants, he, here's what is really what he is about, not to find some group that has the moral right focus for the Bible, not to, to do what he calls ethnic cheerleading. The substitution of African-Americans as, as template in the study of the Bible, he says, is compelling because African-Americans are still a generally ignored and unproblematized but haunting starting point of reference with enormous potential to trip biblical scholars and other types of scholars onto a higher level of critical consciousness about their practices. So just to say that in a little bit less um, uh, academic words, and Professor Wimbush is a, a very well-known academic, but he um, will we will find out how down-to-earth he is as well in the way he approaches this. Um, here he is wanting to say that he thinks that just the chance of being with a culture which which has been not because it wanted to, but almost secretly studying the Bible for over 300 years, having the chance to be with that group, that large section of American society, um, and use that as a template, can get us out of a bunch of the dead ends that we found ourselves in in the study of the Bible. Finally, one reminder of a clever and crucial dimension of Professor Wimbush's proposal. He wants to say that it would really help us um, if we focus, that our focus on the Bible is a script and a manifesto that defines and embraces darkness. This is once again a little bit of his humor and a, 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 quite a bit of his um, power and insight. Let me say that phrase again. To, for us to experience a focus on the Bible in which the Bible is a script and the Bible is a manifesto. And here's the key thing about what kind of strip, script and manifesto it is that defines and embraces darkness. Okay, the first thing to do uh, uh, with, with this is to for us to notice uh, his always subtle and uh, beautiful humor. In other words, he wants us to, to focus on the Bible um, as, as a that defines and embraces darkness. Now, of course, he knows that he's an African-American and he knows that African-Americans are dark. So this is the secondary but quite lovely humor. So he knows that he's proposing that our best way forward may be to really concentrate for a long time on African-American study of the Bible. But here's the, the surprise and, and against the underlying conviction that he has that, um, that this, is, this focus on African-Americans in the Bible and, and, and the Bible uh, is not about race primarily. Um, here he wants us to notice that the, to, to think about the Bible itself 
as something that defines and embraces darkness. Meaning, and here he goes on in his book to, to, to say clearly that this kind of darkness, in addition to the kind of darkness that he has in, in his own ethnicity, this kind of darkness, he means, is um, a kind of trauma and loss in the very fabric of the Bible. What he says is that it's amazing how throughout both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, the Bible keeps coming back to things that are difficult, to things that are painful and lost, keeps going back over traumatic stories and poems and, and thoughts. So, and we will see that that this is really that he has really discovered or rediscovered how much time the bible spends on loss trauma and pain well okay though that's the um that's the um basic thing that I wanted to review and I'll be and let's go forward now with regular Bible study. When we're actually in the same room and as a smaller good-sized Bible study group at this point up and ask for any questions people have had over the last couple of weeks any thoughts any protests any double takes um uh, wanting to make sure that that and that that we uh, have chance to talk together about the insights, the protests, the musings, the questions we have. Um, in fact, what we did was in both of our uh, in our last time we did exactly that, and it really sort of um, erupted in a wonderful 40 minutes of just exactly that. Um, uh, and, and so um, we, of course, can't do that in this setting because I'm just talking. Um, but please write me if you have something uh, to talk about. Uh, uh, do for me a, um, uh, just write me an email, which is hal, H-A-L, at hal, H-A-L, Tausig, T-A-U-S-S-I-G, dot org. Hal, at haltausig, dot org. You can find that on um, in the church directory, too, I think. Um, before we go right into to Bible study uh, this week, I want to say one more um, thing uh, uh, about this, that um, I, I would want to notice about our, our Bible study here in Lent under the um, work of Professor Vincent Wimbush. So most of you, almost all of you know that I am not an African-American. Um, uh, and so that has its own irony that I'm presenting for four weeks on on this topic. But at the same time, I want to, to uh, say that I have worked with Professor Wimbush for six or seven years when we both were professors of New Testament at the Union Theological Seminary in New York. And indeed, um, I was with him uh, uh, in many of our collegial sayings and had the honor of when he would go on um, sabbatical, I would get to take some of his uh, place. One of the things that uh, we did together and apart um, was to follow his way in teaching the New Testament um, uh, for the introduction uh, at the Union Theological Seminary. You might want to know also that I was a um, pastor of a predominantly African-American church for 13 years in the United Methodist uh, denomination. 
I don't mean to show off in that regard, um, but to both notice what a fraud I am um, for teaching this material in some ways, um, and um, to notice that um, uh, I have had some uh, some experience in it, and, and I'm happy to, to stumble along with all of us as we take on this really powerful new kind of thinking about the Bible. Since we have no way to discuss tonight and can't um, look at all of the things we would like to, uh, and we only have one hour, which we're um, um, almost halfway through, rather than two, which we usually have, let's do another round of, of Bible study according to Vincent Wimbush's proposal. As we've done our first two weeks, let's uh, read two passages, one from the Hebrew Bible and one from the New Testament, and then we will bring it into contact with uh, some particular ways that some African Americans have studied these two passages in, uh, historically. The first text is from Exodus, and it's Exodus 1, 8 to 14, Exodus 1, 8 to 14, and 5, 1 to 5. And there came to, to power in Egypt a new king who had never heard of Joseph. This is in the first part of Exodus, and um, Joseph has brought his family and much of, of the people of Israel down to to um, to Egypt. The new king said, look, he said to his people, the Israelites are now more numerous and stronger than we are. We must take precautions to stop them from increasing any more, or if war should break out, they might join the ranks of our enemies. They might take arms against us and then escape from the country. Accordingly, they put, meaning um, the Egyptians, put taskmasters over the Israelites to wear them down by forced labor. In this way, they built the store cities of Python and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the harder they, their lives were made, the more they increased and spread until people came to fear the Israelites. So the Egyptians gave them no mercy in their demands they made, made their lives miserable with hard labor and digging clay, making bricks, and doing various kinds of fieldwork, all so sorts of labor that they imposed on them without mercy. I'm going to turn over to chapter 5. Um, the story that probably a number of you know. Okay, the, a lot of back and forth between the Egyptians and the enslaved Israelites. Moses and Aaron have now become, um, in the story, have now become representatives of, of, of the Israelites under in slavery. After this, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what God of is the God of Israel says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a feast in my honor in the desert. Who is God? Who is your God? Yahweh, Pharaoh replied, for me to obey what he says and let Israel go. I know nothing of your God of Israel, Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. The God of the Hebrews has encountered us, they replied. Give us leave to make a three-day journey into the desert and sacrifice to Yahweh our God, or he will strike us with a plague or with the sword. King of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, what do you mean by distracting the people from their work? Get back to your forced labor. And Pharaoh said, Now that the people have grown so to such numbers in the country, what do you mean by interrupting their forced labor? 
Many of you will recognize this as a part of the larger Exodus story in, in which people, the people of Israel have traveled to Egypt because of the lack of food and have slowly, slowly become enslaved. Let me then um, read also a passage from the Gospel of Mark. Um, and that is just two verses from the 15th chapter, two verses from the 15th chapter, verses 21 and 22. This is, Jesus um, has um, been um, uh, judged and is on the way to the cross. They led him out to crucify him. They enlisted a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus, who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This is a story of a man from the outside of Jerusalem named Simon, whom the Roman soldiers forced to carry Jesus's cross on the way to the crucifixion. This story is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in very similar form, but does not exist in the Gospel of John where Jesus himself carries his own cross. I want now to um, have us think about a way uh, uh, to enter these two texts. And uh, here I want to talk first a bit about the Harlem Renaissance in the 1930s of, of the 20th century. Before I do this, I want to uh, help you with this. We're going to be talking about Aaron Douglas, one of the very well-known painters of first the 1930s and then afterwards um, uh, for a, a good 30 more years. Aaron Douglas. But what I've arranged with the gracious, um, uh, a, a very strong effort of Natalie Hill uh, from the, the church staff, we've arranged to look at some of Aaron Douglas's paintings. And I want you now to take a moment um, to make sure that you have those paintings before you. Uh, one of the fascinating things uh, about this is that Natalie Hill has uh, arranged for you to see this um, on the church website. And there, what I will ask you to do, and you will have other directions on this as well um, on the website itself, but if you go to um, the website in um, the, the section where we talk about our, our ministry of racial justice at St. Martin's. You will find under that section, if you scroll down, you will find that, the, uh, that there, is, there are uh, embedded in the, the website, there are four paintings of Aaron Douglas. Um, and so take a moment now, just pause me if you uh, would, and situate yourself so you can see uh, three of the four paintings that Natalie, you can look at the fourth too, but I want you especially to make sure you have access to um, the painting of Aaron Douglas, Into Bondage, the, pa the, the painting, The Crucifixion, and the painting, The Creation. The, those three paintings. And um, so pause me, if you would, and, and then uh, we can go forward from, from there so that you ha can have those paintings before you. Okay, I hope you have found the paintings of, of Aaron Douglas. Just, just a little bit of, of um, history about Aaron Douglas and the Harlan's. Many of you I know 
uh, are familiar with the Harlem Renaissance and probably know more than I do. Harlem Renaissance was primarily in the late 20s and late 1920s and uh, 1930s in uh, the Harlem section of New York. What happened during that time was uh, a major amount of artists, all kinds of artists, came in to live and work in Harlem. It was really a renaissance of all kinds of African-American artists in Harlem. Um, lots of writers, lots of painters, sculptors, um, theater people, all coming in and, and really finding a place where for the first time there was a powerful national focus on African-American artists. Aaron Douglas is one of those people. He is uh, primarily, or he was primarily a painting, uh, a painter. And, um, and after the Harlem Renaissance, he went to be a professor of, of painting uh, for about 30 years. So we're going to look first in view of the Exodus story in the Bible of, um, uh, of the Israelites in slavery. And looking here at the picture of into bondage, and I, I'm assuming that some of you won't be able to see it, so I'll do some description as well uh, in, in this regard. But um, this is a picture, uh, many of you are seeing it, some not, uh, and it's very striking in, in what one sees. The first Four or five times I saw it, I didn't understand why it was called Into Bondage. Mainly because the main scene of this is a, a beautiful scene from the edge of a forest, I assumed, in Africa. And um, that's right. What one sees is um, palm trees. Um, it's kind of the break of the day. There's a beautiful light from um, from the sky looks like a, a, a an early sunrise uh, at the edge of of the forest there are figures um, there are six figures five, five or six depend yeah I think there are six figures they're uh, basically all in silhouette and all looking to the to a more flat area of of the um, of the of the Africans scene, and to the beautiful sunrise. There, there's only one major figure standing in the middle of the picture, and the the painting, and it's a very um, powerful looking from the back. Um, man who who basically commands the whole picture and who is also looking straight at the stream of sunlight out. Um, the figure is strong, um, muscular, and uh, and the the light shines right in his face. Now the thing that I'm embarrassed to say, um, uh, is that this figure and almost all of the others um, have these little red, almost dots. And frankly, I did not look at that because the rest of the painting was so b beautiful and powerful with the sunlight and the strong man standing in the middle. Uh, and uh, but this they're uh, red bracelets on each of his hands and on each of the hands of at least four of the others. Well, when I finally got around to looking to, at that part of the picture, I noticed that these little, what are almost small 
dots in the picture of red are not only bracelets, but they're bracelets that they're, they're, uh, they basically are a part of each of being chained. So the um, primary figure in the middle um, is, ha is chained um, with his arms in a bit in back of, of him. Although, frankly, it, it's not real far in back. It's not pulling at his back. Partly, and that's maybe partly how how I looked at him as just a powerful, um, beautiful man looking at the sunrise. To his left, and much smaller, is a woman, and and she's raising her hands up to what I thought was the sunlight, and it it is indeed. But she too is in chains, and then in front of him, uh, in smaller figures, are. Um, several other people marching into the flat area of, of the picture um, and one can see at least two of them in well basically one sees um, these red bracelets and can hardly see at all the uh, chains with them but one now knows um, I finally know <laughs> um, that they these are people in chains and of course what one then understands is uh, how um, how this is a part of the um, the enslavement of millions of um, Africans as they're taken to the Americas. What I think is important to see what's going on though and how this is a complex and powerful picture um, that reframes our Bible story. This, of course, is a, in the long term, this is a very strong African-American association between the enslavement of Israel, especially as told in the, in, in the, in the Exodus, and African-American slavery. So, so much of the understanding of the book of Exodus is framed by the experience of slavery of African-Americans. So into bondage is always thought of in, in, in many African-American circles uh, as a double picture of African Americans in slavery and Israelites in slavery. But this is not a picture of simply slavery. It's not a picture of degradation primarily, although it is that. But what's stunning about it, as far as I would want to say, and this is, this is noted by many um, commentaries, on Aaron Douglas's work in general and on this picture um, is that th this is both a picture of power and beauty and a picture of oppression and slavery for the same people or of the same people is probably better than for. It's then not an accident that one would notice that um, this has, this is a reading of the passage we read from Exodus in many ways, and it points us to what is not always clear in readings of Exodus, that this is a, this is a story of freedom, a story of people who are in power. You notice in our text um, that Actually, in the beginning of, of Exodus, the great Pharaoh um, is already afraid of Israel. And so here we have a painting that is a painting that announces the road to freedom for God's people. Uh, it does not take away what Wimbush would call the darkness, the trauma, 
of slavery. It does not understate it. Matter of fact, it is the center of it. Um, but at the same time, the power of the light and the strength of the forest and the way that the forest and the light and the people are one is a, is a powerful reading of the book of Exodus. So I, I enjoy, invite you to s simply stay with this painting for a while. You may want to turn off the, uh, the podcast for a few moments and just let this sink in. You may want to actually read again the, um, the passages from Exodus of um, in chapter 1 and in chapter, uh, what was it again? Um, let me see. Uh, it's um, chapter 1 and then chapter, excuse me, uh, at least now we know we're, um, yes, chapter 5, 1 to, to 5. So do that if you would, um, just for a moment. Um, if you have the, if you have the picture, um, do that. If you uh, have the Bible, do that or or both. You, the one advantage here is that you can um, come back to me anytime you want. I'll just leave that open for a moment. My I will start in a few minutes, but uh, I will um, let leave you alone for a bit as well. Okay, let's start again because we don't have too much time on. I want to direct you to actually, I said it was going to be called the crucifixion. There's a great picture of the uh, painting of the, uh, of the, um, called the crucifixion by Aaron um, Douglas. And I would commend that to you. You can find that online. Um, I'm going to go to another one that's that's quite similar, but um, the before I uh, uh, go to this next one, I want to say that the picture of the the crucifixion by Aaron Douglas has basically just one huge figure covering the entire. Um, painting and this painting um, <clears throat> is is a massive um, figure carrying a even bigger cross and the really interesting thing about it is that the figure um, and a dark figure stands with african-american features very high carrying carrying strongly the cross and there what what you see um, is not jesus jesus is in the background um, but it's simon of cyrene from our text this is not someone who um, has been knocked down this is someone was taking an unbelievably traumatizing event and carrying it strongly. So take a look at that, if you will. What I'd like now to ha have you look at is the one that the uh, that Natalie got for us as well, um, and that's called the Judgment Day. So look, find the Judgment Day, um, uh, and, and if you need to push the button, that's that's also fine. Here too, yet again. For the third time, we have a massive African, African-American figure standing in the very middle of it, blowing a horn. And in the background, there are people uh, reaching up to, to the sky, running, jumping, um, it, probably both in, in praise and in, in fear, because this is called the Judgment Day. But what one again feels here is how powerful the the figure is uh, in the middle of trouble. 
But also, if you look carefully, I have to say, by and large, it feels to me as if these figures, at least some of them, are actually happy. Some of them are probably afraid, but this is a reading of the scripture's text about God coming in judgment. There's beautiful, soft color throughout the painting. And and here you have, um, again, a reading of the scripture of the judgment day. Uh, and there are, uh, of course, a number of picture uh, of judgments day in the scriptures, probably primarily in the revelation to John. But here Aaron Douglas has is reading it differently. He's reading it as a beautiful event and he's reading it as a strong event. Um, most European pictures of the Judgment Day focus on the distress that's happening. I want to say that it, that we this helps us rethink how the texts are in the Bible about Judgment Day. Aaron Douglas helps us think about that. In, in ways that are, um, I think, uh, a very important uh, dimension of what the scriptures are saying. I have only about five more minutes, and um, I'm going to go to the, the third Aaron Douglas picture. And that is the one um, that is called the creation. And here, if you get, if you will go and look at it, you have um, another very similar, what I would call, product of the Harlem Renaissance. Here too, you have the scriptural story being read of the creation. And here too, you have something that is quite different than much of the way we have read it, but is very clearly in the text of Genesis 1 and 2 as well. What you see here is, again, a, a strong, dark figure looking away from us in the center of the picture, breaking the, the, um, through the, the horizon and looking up, not at all dissimilar to the uh, last two we have looked at with the dominance of a strong, dark figure looking away from us into what is quite beautiful. Uh, but here the figure is not large as in the judgment day or into, into bondage. Rather, there is a huge figure at the top coming down in a beautiful purple, light purple color. It's just a hand. I don't know exactly how um, people got to this, but most of the the commentators on uh, Aaron Douglas's uh, cr The Creation say this is a female hand reaching down. So this is God in motherly form, they say, um, uh, uh, basically embracing um, the human creation. Then there are beautiful pictures of, again, the sky. Um, uh, uh, and so the, the hand is reaching down from God in a motherly fashion to embrace the creation, which is primarily represented by the dark figure looking up to the hand. What's very, very interesting to me is that uh, this is mainly about the African-American and how close the created African-American or this figure, we don't, I think um, Aaron Douglas would um, correct me that this figure is all of humanity. And, and I, just because he looks like an African-American, I that's probably an over-reading of it. But 
there's only one plant in the in the painting right beside uh, the man looking up to God's hand. Um, in other words, this helps us also look at um, one and chapters one and two Genesis, uh, where uh, there is is strong focus on the very close relationship between the human and God's motherly blessing and creation. Um, so here too, uh, Douglas's reading reminds us that we are at the center of the creation that, that God gives. My time is almost up. I hope that you look at more. There are just lots of paintings of Aaron Douglas. There are lots of also uh, other um, artistic works from the <clears throat> Harlem Renaissance <clears throat> that intersect and, as I would say, read the the read the passage. Um, uh, of, of scripture. Thank you for this. Um, I'm hoping that we in the future can do a lot more with Vincent Wimbush's approach to reading the Bible. Um, uh, as we planned this four parts uh, session, um, as you may have noticed, I've been asked to, um, for the fourth session, uh, step back back from Wimbush, I'm sorry to say, but I um, also am happy to do another uh, reading of scripture in which we're going to look at ethnicity and race in the New Testament. Um, and we will read that. We'll just look at more historically from the, the writings in the first two scriptures, or the first two centuries. Um, we will look at um, how issues of race and ethnicity um, are in the New Testament. That will be on podcast next week. Um, and hopefully in the future, we'll also uh, get a chance to spend much more time, maybe 20 years, with Vincent Wimbush's approach to Bible study. Thanks so much for being with me. Sorry for my um, um, errors in in the um, recording of it. Uh, and I, I hope you all um, are in God's presence as we go forward.